this evening. It's really good to be back in Scotland. Uh, living in Hanoi in Vietnam, we don't get much opportunity to enjoy the Scottish sun. So we feel very privileged this week. I said that to somebody up here and they said, well, we don't get very much opportunity to enjoy the Scottish sun either. Uh, so we feel we've been we're very fortunate just to hit summer. We, we thank you for your continuing prayers for us and our family. Uh, that's just uh, our latest prayer card of us and our family, and you're very welcome to take one of those. I think they're on each of the stairs and the piles of literature on the windowsills. Um, please take it to pray for us or to put on your dartboard or decorate your fridge or whatever it is you want to do with that. Uh, but we are appreciative of the fact that uh, uh, we were sent out by Charlotte Chapel nearly 30 years ago now. Uh, we left for Asia February 1986, and we're very thankful for the faithful support in many ways over that time. The last two and a half years, we've been in Vietnam, in Hanoi, and so we're coming to you uh, to share a little bit about that, though particularly this evening to share from God's Word. Um, grateful for all that the Lord has taught us over the last two and a half years, and praying particularly that God will call more people uh, to come and join with us in reaching the people of Vietnam. But my commission this evening is primarily uh, to share with you from God's Word. And in many ways, when I first saw this passage, I thought, oh, the Council of Jerusalem. It's that great long meeting in the, in the middle of Acts. And at first impression is it's not terribly exciting. There's all these exciting adventures that Peter preaches and thousand believes and Paul preaches and many more believes and they have shipwrecks and court appearances and here's a meeting. Now, I don't know how many of you feel you spend too much of your lives in meetings. Uh, some of us, depending on our jobs, have to spend a lot of our lives in meetings. But this meeting was actually an incredibly important meeting for the early church. It's called the Council of Jerusalem. It's really the church's first missionary council. And it's important enough, the disagreement between the different people, between the apostles, Peter and Paul, and what they're preaching, and these other people who say they have been sent out by the church in Jerusalem, this disagreement is big enough for them to pause the work and travel up to Jerusalem. And I didn't have time to check it out, but that wasn't just a day trip. That meant stopping everything, traveling through several places, and they made the most of the opportunity and shared with the churches as they got there. Um, but probably weeks, if not months, out of the work to resolve this key question. A deep disagreement that led them to a deeper understanding of the gospel. So what was the issue? The issue of great importance was how are Gentiles saved? Now, I would guess that nearly all of us here are Gentiles. We probably don't actually think of ourselves as Gentiles, but not usually very many people of Jewish background. There might be some. But most of us are Gentiles. So the question relates very directly to us, doesn't it? How are we saved? And there's real disagreement about what is required for Gentiles, for us, for all the peoples of the world, to be saved. 
Now, the context is a very positive one in many ways, because the story so far is that lots of Gentiles are being saved. It's not just a hypothetical question, you know, if a Gentile was saved, how it would, would happen, but it has been happening. And it started in Acts chapter 10 and 11 with the story of Cornelius. And that's one of my favorite stories from Acts, because you have Cornelius, this good man, who seems to be doing everything right, but he still needs to be saved. And then you have Peter, the evangelist, and God has to drag him kicking and screaming to Cornelius' house in order to share the gospel with him. And even when he gets there, he says, this house is dirty for me as a Jew, I shouldn't really be here. And, and you get the impression when he gets halfway through his message before God has to step in and pour out his Holy Spirit and demonstrate that he is determined to save Gentiles. And it's one of the few stories that's told twice because then Peter has to go back and give an explanation of himself. And, and after those whole two chapters, which really bear rereading if you're not familiar with them, the leaders of the church concluded, this is Acts eleven eighteen. Even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. I just get the sense of going, even, unbelievably, the Gentiles are able to have a part in this salvation, are able to have a part of this life. But that's just the beginning. Cornelius is the, the big Blockage, not, not Cornelius, Peter's the blockage. The church is the blockage to realize that God intends Gentiles to be saved. And very soon, believers are scattered by persecution and they begin to travel around. And ordinary believers began to speak to Greeks also. And many believed. And the number of Gentile believers, it's not just this one man and his family, but there's Gentiles all over the place coming to the Lord. And then Paul goes out on his missionary journey. And, and a significant point in that missionary journey is faced with the refusal of Jews to receive this message. He says, we turned to the Gentiles. And we really began to make a point of preaching to Gentiles. And many believed. And he later reported how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And this has now been happening for several years. And the church in Jerusalem, which was essentially a Jewish church is now beginning to see not just a few Gentile believers, but many Gentile believers. And, and perhaps it's the threat of that flood of believers that aren't like them that is worrying them. We don't know, but it's threatening their character. And some in the church respond with these requirements for salvation. How are Gentiles saved? And the question is, do Gentiles need to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses to be saved? Because this is what they're saying. Acts 15, verse 1. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Verse 5. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And that's quite a different thing from the message that the Gentiles have been hearing, which is one of repent and believe and you will be saved. And now they're saying, and be circumcised and 
obey all the law of Moses. Why were they saying that? Because I think whenever we're faced with somebody who has a very different position to ourselves, it's helpful to, to understand where they're coming from, even if we don't agree where they're getting to with their argument. And probably the key thing that is behind this, probably more than one thing, but one of the key things is the Gentiles need to become Jews in order to be saved by the Jewish Messiah. And that's what this is really about. These are the requirements for people to become Jews. And up till now, God's purpose has been worked out through the Jewish people. And so they naturally think that, yes, the Gentiles can be included. It took a little bit of work for them to accept that. But if they are to be included, they need to become Jews. And in order to become Jews, they need to be circumcised and need to obey the law of Moses because that's what has been required of us as Jews. And this is perhaps the key question here. Does a Gentile have to become a Jew to be saved by the Jewish Messiah? Or can they be a Gentile and be a Gentile Christian? Up until a few years ago, this, this new group had really been an offshoot of Judaism. It was all Jews. But it is growing. It is bracing the world. And, and that reflects on how we think about Jesus. Is Jesus just the Jewish Messiah? Or is he the Savior of the world? And what was God's purposes? God's purposes when he chose Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 and said, I am choosing you to bless you, but I am choosing you that in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. The Jews hadn't got it wrong that they were specially chosen to prepare the way for God sending his son. Where they had got it wrong was understanding that that meant everybody had to become part of them, to become part of God's people. And so they had this big debate. Uh, and we read here, after much discussion, and we don't know precisely, uh, one of the commentators reckoned he could discern four different meetings that had happened here. Uh, probably having come all the way up to Jerusalem, there were a multitude of different meetings and talking together one-on-one -on -one in various different groups before they came together to resolve it. And there were three key contributions to this discussion. Peter spoke about what God had already shown them in the salvation of Cornelius. Peter got up and addressed them and he said, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. And Peter's emphasis in what he has to say is that at that point, God began to make no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. We got the Holy Spirit, they got the Holy Spirit. And by implication, they hadn't become Jews, they hadn't been circumcised, they hadn't obeyed the law, but we both got the Holy Spirit. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith just as he'd purified our hearts by faith. Why do you test the God, 
test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. We are saved by grace. They are saved by grace. And there is no difference in the way that a Jew is saved or a Gentile is saved. That an English person is saved or a Scottish person or a Vietnamese person or a Chinese person. It is all the same. There is one way. And that is it. Then Barnabas and Paul stood up and they recounted what God had been doing. And the whole assembly became silent as they listened to them telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And I think probably uh, Luke only gives it one verse because we've already had two chapters in our narrative. But we can assume that they got a bit longer to explain these things in the context of that meeting. And then James got up, who had clearly become the leader of the church there in Jerusalem, uh, got up to give the summary of what he had heard and what they had concluded through these days of discussion. And the interesting thing is he doesn't just summarize what has been said. He goes back to God's word. God's word in the Old Testament, God's word through the prophets, and relates their discussion, relates their experience to what God has said. And this is so important, isn't it? Uh, often our experience does challenge our theology. Often our theology is formed as we wrestle with our experience. But it isn't just our experience that forms our theology, I hope. It's our experience as we reflect on that, as we talk to other brothers and sisters in Christ, and as we go back to God's Word and say, what does God's Word say about this? And then often we're led into a new understanding of truth. One of the things we often find with people serving overseas in a different culture is quite different issues come up. And, and as they try and think about them, they see new facets of their faith. We don't change their minds about the faith, but they see things they hadn't seen before because you know, they weren't that relevant in their old context, but they are really very significant in this context. And James here, he quotes from the prophets, from Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12, and says, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. These Gentiles who bear my name. And we might or might not pick up on the significance of that, but Israel was a set-apart people who bore the name of God. And James is saying in quoting this verse from Amos that the Gentiles too in Christ are becoming a set-apart people who bear the name of God. He's using terms that were very special to the people of Israel in, in their minds just describing them and showing that, no, this was always God's intention for people from all nations, that they would be his special set-apart people. 
because this is the key thing what Peter said in the middle of this discussion we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved we Jews it's Peter speaking just as they are they Gentiles and this is the key issue that is at stake in wanting to make Gentiles become Jews in order to be saved it's it's making Jesus insufficient in order to be saved it's adding to faith in Jesus a religious ritual circumcision uh, following the law and Peter says what he has learned what he has preached what he has seen change life that is through the grace of our Lord Jesus alone is implied that we Jews are saved and they Gentiles are saved salvation is by grace I'm sure you all know that but it's good to keep reflecting on that grace is about it being a free gift I was taught long ago that grace G-R-A-C-E stands for God's riches at Christ's expense I suspect many of you already know that acronym but it reminds us that this is a gift and we simply have to receive it and there's nothing we can do to add to it or take away from it God offers salvation as a gift and the thing is that most religions of the world show you a way to earn your salvation however they conceive of salvation it is something you have to work at it's something you have to deserve it's something you you know it's got to come from within you to get to it and biblical faith says no we can't earn it we can never make it but the good news is we don't have to because it's already given to us we used to work in the Philippines and the Philippines is a predominantly Roman Catholic country uh, a medieval Spanish Catholicism which is a long long way from biblical truth most of the time but because they have that biblical background they have this word grace and they use it quite a lot but they're completely confused about it because grace in popular usage in the Philippines is something you earn how can a gift be something you earn it's, it's the exact opposite of what it means but I found grace was was like air miles you know every time you did a good deed you gained a few air miles or grace miles and and there was a sort of heavenly bank account where they were slowly totting up and you hoped and prayed that if you were good enough and you did a good enough things in your lifetime somehow those air miles or those grace miles would accumulate enough and and you'd be able to go to heaven at the end and maybe if they weren't quite enough then you'd have to go to purgatory for a while and maybe if they were nowhere near enough then you're a pretty hopeless case now, I'm not telling you this is official Roman Catholic theology but this was the the mindset of the average Filipino steeped in the Roman Catholicism there and it's so far from the message that we have that this is a free gift we can't save ourselves only Jesus can it's very different to Buddhism in Buddhism it said you cannot depend on anyone else for your salvation you must depend on yourself alone it's quite a common saying in some of the Buddhist 
nations around us. No one saves us but ourselves. No one can and no one may. So we're stuck with us. And our situation is hopeless. But we're not stuck with us because Jesus has done it and there's nothing we can add to it. And there's hope, huge hope, because this salvation is given to us. And this salvation is the same for Jews and Gentiles. That's the point that's been made very strongly here. Jesus is the Savior of all the world, and Jesus is all that is needed for peoples of all the world to be saved. It's the same for everybody. It's interesting, sometimes as a missionary meeting different people, uh, you get people saying to you, but, but don't they already have their own religion? I don't know if you've... A favorite thing, I think, for British people to say, uh, even sometimes nominal Christians to say, that think, you know, having religion is the important thing, and if they already have their own religion, isn't that good enough? Do we think ours is better? Well, we think Jesus... We don't think he's better. We think he's the only way. He is the only one. His is the only name under heaven given to mankind by which anybody can be saved. And so we want to get that good news out there. We, we are sad that there are so few believers in the country that we're in at the moment, in Vietnam. But we praise God that there are some. I find there's two sides of this message about the situation in Vietnam. One is, is that there's only 0.1% of the population in the north are Christians. Very, very few. The other side of the picture is the church is growing. 1975, 40 years ago, the American War came to an end. Actually, you probably call it the Vietnam War. But we call it the American War in Vietnam. <laughs> Why would we call it the Vietnam War? Uh, <laughs> let's call it the American Vietnam War. It came to an end 40 years ago, this year, 1975. At that point, or shortly before that point, somebody had done a careful census of the believers, and there were 160,000 evangelical Christians in Vietnam. Today there are 1.6 million evangelical believers in Vietnam. The church has increased tenfold. The population has grown. The population has grown twofold. But the church has in increased tenfold. God has been at work. The country has been communist. God is still at work. He didn't leave. Lots of other people left, but he didn't leave. He has been at work. The situation is patchy. The church is very strong in some places and very weak in others. There are many different people groups and a lot of the the growth has been in certain of the people groups. So some of our people groups are 40 or 50% Christians, and others are 0.1 and 0.05% Christian. But God is at work. The church has not been there that long. Uh, this is the main official church uh, in Hanoi. We only have one sort of church building that looks like a church building, uh, apart from Roman Catholic churches there. Uh, it's not even 100 years old. It's 100 years next year, and it will celebrate its anniversary. And I feel that contrast when I come back here, and I was looking at this earlier. 
1808. We're already 200 years old. Uh, last Sunday evening, I was preaching in a church in Chesterley Street, which celebrates the fact that there's been a Christian congregation meeting on that spot since 833 A.D. St. Cuthbert's body was taken there, and they set up some, some worship there at that point. You know, I'm actually, I'm actually embarrassed sometimes to talk about these things in Vietnam, because to say, oh, well, we've had the gospel for 1,200 years... <laughs> And it took so long to get to you. Um, I don't necessarily want to boast about that. But it has got there. It is growing. But there's a long way to go. What is needed for these people to call on the name of the Lord? Paul, writing in Romans, says, Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? How can they hear without somebody preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? And this is God's sequence. To be saved, they need to call. To call, they need to believe. To believe, they need to hear. If they're going to hear, somebody needs to preach, to share, to tell them. And if that's going to happen, somebody needs to be sent. See it at the bottom of the slide going the other direction. Sent to preach, to hear, believe, call, saved. That peoples all over the world will partake of this free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. So it's by grace, it's a gift. It's the same for Jews and Gentiles. And it makes us all God's people. It doesn't make us all God's people by making us all the same people, which was the expectation of some of these Jewish Christians that everybody would become Jews. It makes us all God's people by making Gentile Christians Gentile Christians and remaining as Gentile Christians, not having to become Jewish Christians. But it creates this international family of all peoples of the world. And it reminds me of that vision in Revelation. That after this, John says, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. How did he know looking at this people that there were all these tribes, nations and, land, uh, and, and languages represented? I don't know the answer, but there was something about them. They hadn't lost their distinctiveness. They hadn't lost all their differences. They didn't look just like thousands of thousands of people, exactly the same, all buying down together. They looked as though they were different groups. There was something there that made it clear. And it's just a picture of God's intention for his church, that it is diverse in ethnicity and where it comes from, and it's internationalist. But it is united in its worship of the Lamb. In Vietnam, we have 54 different ethnic groups, and we're continually aware of this diversity. The ethnic Vietnamese are far and away the majority, but there's 53 other groups. Uh, one of our team works among one of these groups, and he's been slowly learning their language, and uh, from time to time, he's visited 
some of the villages because it's more of a highland group uh, with the person who's teaching his language and his language was improving and he and his language teacher were joking about he'd got past phase one and phase two and now he was into phase three or phase four and they were joking with this old lady of this ethnic group and, and she said well at which phase will he be able to talk to the spirits because in her culture in her context talking to the spirits was really the high point of, of being able to speak the language and only a few people could do that and he said I, I can't talk to the spirits but I can talk to the creator God she said, ooh I'd love to hear that so he said okay and there and then he prayed to God and she heard him praying to God and what she said afterwards was wow God speaks my language because he prayed in her language his faltering language but her language and one of the messages of the good news to the different peoples of Vietnam and the different peoples of the world is he is ready to be their God he is ready to put his name upon them he speaks their language but it needs somebody to be sent to preach to share often in their language that that good news would get to them that was the first big issue of this conference how a Gentile saved the second big issue is how should Gentile Christians live okay we're not saved by how we live we're not saved by following the law but because we're saved because we follow Jesus we live differently and if we don't live differently there's a big question whether we're saved we don't live differently in order to be saved but when we start following Jesus it should turn our lives around but what should that mean for Gentile Christians they shouldn't keep living just the same what instructions is the mother church in Jerusalem going to give them and James stands up and he summarizes and he quotes this passage from Amos and then he says don't make it difficult and the thought here particularly seems to be the new believer is to become like Christ but they're not necessarily to become like us and we could say this about new churches as well new churches are to become like Christ they're not necessarily to become just like us you know there's a fresh vision for church planting out of Charlotte Chapel but but I hope and I'm fairly sure the vision isn't just to create mini Charlotte chapels because that's not really the biblical vision now often we've done that in the past and I can take you to different places around the world and you will find many replicas of European churches physical replicas uh, when I was teaching church planting I used to often talk to my students of we're, we're concerned to plant churches not clone churches and planting means we plant the seed of the gospel and we let it grow up and and change people and gather together in a new community and the new community takes a, a a different form that reflects the community out of which they've come as well as the life of Jesus in them that is shaping them in that new community Hudson Taylor who is the founder of the China Inland Mission which became the 
Overseas Missionary Fellowship. Actually, um, in about 11 days, we're 150 years old. That's not Amory and I, but... <laughs> but the Overseas Missionary Fellowship or the China Inland Mission will, will celebrate 150 years since Hutchinson Taylor was led to, to start the organization. And he was committed to seeing a thoroughly Chinese church. Not a nice replica of his case. He was a, a Methodist from Yorkshire. And he didn't want to see uh, Yorkshire Methodist churches replicated through China. And we don't want to see Yorkshire Methodist churches in Vietnam. We want to see thoroughly Vietnamese churches, if they're amongst the Vietnamese, or Hmong churches, one of our minorities, or Num or Tay and others of our minorities, churches that are recognizably theirs because they do things in their way, but they're thoroughly biblical because they don't do anything that is contrary to the teaching of the scriptures. But we haven't forced on them to do certain things that we do in church, which are perfectly okay to do, and perhaps very Scottish to do, but very unusual for them to do, and, and not a necessary part of obeying the Bible. And one of the things we often have to wrestle with in the missionary context is, is what is biblical and what is cultural? What are the things that we, we naturally think we should do in church because we always did them in church when we grew up, but actually, you know, you don't have to do them to be a Bible-believing church and to try and set those things apart and make sure the biblical things to the fore and there's freedom in other things. Don't make it difficult. Don't require them to be or to do lots of things that the Bible doesn't require them to do. So what do they require of them? Well, we have this list that James comes up with and that is then sent out in a letter to all the churches. And I've called this the four abstentions because they're asked to abstain from four things. Food sacrificed to idols, blood, the meat of strangled animals, and sexual immorality. Now look at that list from a 21st century perspective. And I think most of you will probably agree that from a 21st century perspective, it's a fairly odd list. And as you go down the stairs, there's a, there's a leaflet on discipleship in the chapel. I looked at it earlier. And, and some of these things just don't appear there. For some reason, we count ourselves as a biblical church, and yet we hardly ever talk about the meat of strangled animals. I haven't gone back and listened to all the old sermons, I have, I have to admit, but I'm pretty sure you won't find that as a regular feature. And this is a funny kind of mixture, because there's, there's some things here that are clearly for believers at all time, abstaining from sexual immorality. And there are some things that are more to do with the ceremonial law, like, abstaining from blood and the meat of strangled animals that, that we scratch our heads and think what do, what do we do about this today and we haven't structured our discipleship around these four abstentions have we no you haven't you better get more biblical I think you know <laughs> so what's this about as I've looked at this, and the commentators struggle with this as well, why have we got this peculiar list and what are we supposed to do it today? 
it seems to me this is not the four key discipleship issues for all Gentile believers at all times. And generally speaking, that is what the church as a whole has understood it. There are a few odd offshoots of the church who have tried to follow these things, but on the whole, Bible-believing churches have not decided these are the key discipleship things. But they do seem to have been the four key discipleship issues for Gentile believers at that time. Why? Why these particular issues? Well, um, half of it seems to be key discipleship challenges in their context. Idolatry and immorality. Nearly all the Gentiles who were coming to Christ at that time were coming from backgrounds that were steeped in idol worship. And usually, totally mixed up with that idol worship was all kinds of immorality. Often the, the very worship services connected with the, the worship of different gods were mixed up with, with immorality and um, sacred uh, prostitutes and all kinds of stuff and it was all together and clearly these were key issues that as new believers they needed to separate themselves from the other two of these uh, four abstentions seems to be focused on keeping unity and fellowship between Gentile believers and Jewish believers the church is at an early stage. It is still growing. It is still establishing its life. And one of God's passions expressed in Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 is that the church would be one. And clearly at this point, they don't want there to be a Jewish church and a Gentile church, and they become so different they have nothing more to do with each other. But for Jews, these ritual rules were really important. And if people didn't follow these basic rules, they couldn't eat together. And in, in, in many societies of the world, eating together is at the core of fellowship together. If when it comes to the great church meal, everybody sits on that side who needs the um, kosher food, and everybody sits at that side who can eat anything, then the two grow further and further apart. And so it seems to me, looking at these rules, these were the concerns. These were why they were the key issues at that time. And certainly it's by, been my experience, as we think about discipleship in different contexts, discipleship has to be contextualized. Remember, we had a visit um, from the vicar of uh, another church that supports us in the south of England. Uh, and in his visit, he said, well, has OMF got any good discipleship materials? I said, well, yes, we've got all kinds of discipleship materials. We've got good discipleship materials for Thai Christians and Japanese Christians, but I'm not sure we have any good discipleship materials for Sussex Christians uh, because the issues are different. And, and some of the things that we would think essential to cover in the first few lessons of discipleship in other contexts, you probably don't get to until a very advanced discussion of the Scriptures in other contexts being ready to suffer for Christ. I was having a discussion with some members of our team who are working with a minority about persecution. And one said, if these people are to become believers, they need to do that knowing they will be persecuted. 
Now, not everybody all over Vietnam is persecuted. Uh, sometimes the impression given by some of the groups that are concerned to get prayer going for the persecuted church doesn't give you the whole picture. But in some parts of Vietnam, and particularly among some of the minorities in the hill, if you become a Christian, you will be persecuted. And you better be aware of that up front. And you better be prepared for that in some of your first few discipleship lessons. You better think about food offered to idols. Because that's going to be a reality in nearly every home. There is a shelf for ancestor worship and the food is often put there for a while before it's given to you. But I suspect that that's not a big issue for a lot of Christians in Edinburgh. So we don't include it in our basic discipleship. But you better include that early. It may be the involvement with the demonic. We've got people who are coming out of dealing with the spirits. And so dealing with that is one of the first things that's got to go in those first few lessons. Now, of course, we've got to teach them about prayer, about reading the Bible, about fellowship with other Christians. And there are other basics that everybody needs. But there are other specific issues that in different contexts are the key issues you've got to get to early on to prepare people um, for living for Christ in their context. Ancestor worship is a huge one in Vietnam. 90% of Vietnam's people will be ancestor worshippers. For a new Christian, think perhaps of a young person who's come up to the big city to study at university. They've met Christians. They've become a believer themselves. Everybody goes back home at New Year. New Year is usually about mid-February or late February or March. It moves around, sometimes January. Uh, but that is the big holiday when people go back. And the central part of that family celebration where they make a particularly important offering to the ancestors. What is the new believer going to do at that point? They need to be prepared for that. I'm pretty sure that any imported discipleship materials that people bring into Vietnam, they just won't get to that. It's not that the scriptures don't speak about food offered to idols. It's just that we don't have to worry about that most of the time, but for them, it is a big issue. How will they not be involved in that act of idolatry and at the same time still honor their parents? For many Asians, and also for many uh, Asian British people and Asian American people, one of the big issues in discipleship is following Jesus without dishonoring your parents. Uh, and this is a book that's written by Asian American Christians, particularly on this issue, because for them, this is one of the biggest issues. Now, the scriptures speak about honoring our parents, don't they? I suspect we probably don't actually focus as much on that as we, we ought to. But it's drilled into them that they must honor their parents, but then they decide to follow Jesus. How can they reconcile those two? I remember once discussing it with uh, a class I was teaching at All Nations. And there was a Turkish Muslim background believer. And we were talking about this issue about how do you follow Christ and honor your parents. And he said, when I decided to follow Christ as a Turkish Muslim, this was the most dishonorable thing I could do to my parents. It's very, very difficult. 
and I've struggled with that but it's really important and it's really important in our discipleship of Christians in, in, in our context that we get to contextual discipleship otherwise we end up with what some have called a split level Christianity in which Christianity addresses the ultimate issues salvation, eternal life, what happens to you when you die, but fails to address the immediate, the intimate issues of what you do when you're sick. Ah, well, go back to, to the witch doctor or the equivalent, and um, you know, perhaps it's the spirits causing it. If you haven't really got to that in practical day-to-day -day living, finding a wife, living with other people, and the result sometimes is a changed religion but not a changed life. And in some parts of the world, we have societies, it seems particularly a problem in Africa, where there's a high percentage of Christians. But there's huge problems that shouldn't happen to Christians. Uh, war and killing and genocide between Christian tribes. And there's been a failure in discipleship to address those issues. And it seems to me very much that this is a contextualized set of abstentions for them that their discipleship their following of Jesus their obeying Jesus day to day is on target and they preserve unity and fellowship with Jewish Christians so that they can eat together they can be different in Christ but they should be in fellowship in Christ and we are set free in Christ but Paul has a long discussion about our freedom in 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 8 to 10 where he talks about this freedom. We are no longer under the law. We no longer have to do certain things in order to be saved. But he says, and, and this is my praise, not his exact words, but there's quite a lot of things that I choose not to do, not because I am not allowed to do them in Christ, but because by not doing, I can take forward the work of the gospel. And for me, it's much more important, me, Paul, to, to not do things to take forward the work of the gospel than to exercise my freedom to do these things and spoil the work of the gospel or spoil fellowship with other believers, which is a key part of the gospel message. So he says, I, I make myself a Greek to the Greek and a Jew to the Jews and and all that stuff so that I can take forward the work of the gospel. In some of our contexts, uh, not particularly in Vietnam but elsewhere, we have people working with Muslims. And it's pretty much a basic, if you're going to work with Muslims, that you have to give up pork. Now, we don't do that because the Bible requires us to give up pork or because we've got a new theology, but because we want to make our homes welcoming places for Muslims. And if we eat pork, they're dirty places. And they will never be comfortable eating with us. And some people don't care much about pork, but some of, the, uh, of my fellow workers I know really enjoy their pork, and it's quite a sacrifice not to eat pork at all. And there are other things that we set aside that there's nothing essentially wrong with them, but because there's something more important. And that's being asked of the Gentile Christians here, could you set aside eating these things so that we can have fellowship together? I'm sure in a church there's things we, 
we, we would love to do or have the church do or, or whatever, but we set them aside because we value the unity of the fellowship together. We give them up in different contexts so the gospel can go to people who do not have it. And so they put these things in a letter and they sent it out and they gathered the church in Antioch and read it out and the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. And this meeting, this conference, this discussion about these essentials, it endorsed what had been happening with these believers coming to faith over the last five or ten years. And it, it, it set the stage for it to continue to happen with the full understanding of the church. Understanding about Gentile believers, but understanding as well, I think, much better the salvation that they had received by grace in Christ. We are all saved by grace. Saved by the free gift of God through the work of Christ. I hope as I look out at you this evening that you all know that for yourselves. If you don't know that for yourselves, please come and talk to me or to Liam or, or one of the pastors or elders afterwards to, to understand what that really means to receive this free gift that we do not have to work for anymore. We do not have to go through a religious ritual. We do not have to follow any laws. You do not have to come to Charlotte Chapel. You do not have to go to certain Bible studies. It is a gift from God because we cannot do it for ourselves because Jesus has done it for us. And we are saved by grace in Christ to be like Christ. Not to be identical to each other, to be part of this international church of distinctly different individuals and groups and ethnicities and nationalities, but who are united together in Christ. And we're saved to live for Christ as Lord. And this is what the apostolic letter is about. How should you live in the particular challenges of living for Jesus at that time? To honor him in our context. In their context, it was avoiding idolatry and sexual immorality. We may face those challenges. We may face different challenges. We need to figure out what they are and work out what it means to walk in obedience to Jesus in our context. And as people come to faith, what are the challenges they particularly need to be equipped for? To live for Jesus, to obey Jesus and to live in fellowship with his people. We're never attended just to be on our own following Christ, but in fellowship with other followers of Christ, in churches, in communities, loving Jesus and reflecting him to the world. Let's pray.